I didn't realize that Savage Dragons had 231 fucking episodes. Mm-hmm. Issues. Well, Dude, so, that is yeah, that's a lot. Fucking phenomenal for one man to write, plot, draw. Jesus Christ, that dude well, is a fucking machine. Yeah, it is very, very I, impressive. Dude, I'm beyond impressed. No, I know he's dude. going for 300 because he wants to take that Dave Sim record. Because really? Dave Sim did 300. So he's got to do a 300. So Dave Sim did 300? 300 issues of Cerebus, yes. And he did everything on it? He didn't do everything. Gerhard came in and did a lot of the textures. Like he, he would like do the backgrounds and stuff. But Sim was doing all the figures and all the storytelling. And Gerhard would basically add production value by adding like to architecture and heavy rendering on the shadows. Well, I'm still reading. Yeah, but aren't you good? So far, they're fine. I'm, I, they haven't become like the great works that they're revered as really? yet. But so far, it's an enjoyable Conan riff because the first phone book isn't as well regarded. It's well regarded, but it's the second, third, and fourth one I think that people really like. Church and State is the one that people like. Ooh! really good get jizz over so I haven't made it there Why yet is that? he reached a levels of complexity that hadn't been seen in comics up to that point point. and my question is am I going to appreciate it as a product of its time or am I going to be able to appreciate it as something that's timeless good point. Good you know point. so we'll, we'll have to wait and that's see that's a very good point because I did notice some stuff when I was going through these books that I kind of was like skimming did not hold up very well yeah. at all I yeah. was shocked Yeah. because I remember at the time I'm like oh this is fantastic and then I was reading I'm like <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh, it'll be interesting to see I think that people don't talk about surfaces as much not necessarily because because it lost its luster, but because Sim has been outspoken in some very problematic ways about I mean. subjects like feminism, women in general. Oh, really? Was he kind of like a slap a low kind of guy? He, not so much that, but he views women as a void that sucks up all of men's creativity and life essence Holy and shit. shit. Is so he it's gay? no, he's straight. A lot of people think he's kind of a creepy MRA kind of dude. So that's MRA? men's rights activist uh, kind of mentality. I, didn't know that. I don't know that he is. I'm saying that I never he's heard a, that term MRA. Oh, you don't? Oh, MRA is a big thing on the internet especially men's men's rights activists yeah holy shit oh yeah so uh, welcome to Spawnometer I'm Diablo Frank with me is Senor Fix It and today we're going to discuss Spawn number 10 came out on May the 11th 1993 other number ones that had come out around that same time were Death Blow Blood Strike Shaman's Tears Stupid Youngblood Battle Zone Tribe oh, uh, Shadowhawk 2 the second miniseries which ended up being incorporated into an ongoing series and the Brigade ongoing series got started. We also saw the first trade for the Savage Dragon. The issue we're covering is called Crossing Over. It was dedicated to Don Heck. He was one of the guys who's best known for Iron Man back in the 60s. Okay. I remember hearing the name, but no, I don't know who it is. And I checked, he passed away a few years after this issue. R.I.P. This one is written by Dave Sim. From what we've discussed, I know he's famous for drawing a aardvark. Cerebus the Earth Pig, yes. That goes through very um, philosophy-laden, dreamlike. Philosophical, politics, religion, satire. Yeah. Okay. And one of the big success stories of early independent comics. Black and got, white comic. I remember seeing it everywhere. Got launched back in the 70s. Lasted for a couple of decades. 300 issues in total. Of course, a big inspiration because Dave Sim is Canadian, as is Todd McFarlane. Because if you think about it, McFarlane thought that comic book writers, great comic book writers, were a better sales tool, the best possible gimmick to have on a comic versus foil covers and things like that, variants, that sort of thing. So he gets Alan Moore, who is, of course, one of the most revered writers of all time. He gets Frank Miller, same. He gets Neil Gaiman, who wasn't as huge back in the early 90s, but he getting big at that point. Okay. Uh, he was certainly very well regarded. I think he'd already won that sci-fi award that he got, a Saturn Award by that point. And then Dave Sim is sort of like the odd man out, because while he is a critically regarded comic book creator, he doesn't move the kind of units that those other guys did. So I think that being an independent success story and being Canadian probably played into his being picked to be one of the four writers. My only experience with Dave Sims is going to Third Planet Comic Book Shop, walking in there 
they would have the Marvel, DC, and the Independents were on the opposite direction on a smaller shelf. And I just remember that book was always very prominent. That was like the big book. Was like, it literally the big book, the telephone? No, 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 no. The, I'm talking like they were still coming out individual issues at the time. Yeah. But it was a big deal because I remember there was Boris the Bear. That, like there was a bunch of these little books. They would always have the pick of the week and it was always at Cerberus. Well, to a large degree, Cerberus created the trade paperback market between Cerebus and the uh, Fireside books that collected a bunch of Marvel stories. Those were like really the first trade paperbacks that were available in shops and helped to show the viability of the bookstore market mm-hmm. for comic book collections. I didn't know that. I just remember buying mine at uh, Walden Books. He came to our city in the early dawn. But though later he would be called the finest warrior to enter our gates, at the time he was but a curiosity. You see... He stood only five hands high, had a lengthy snout, a long tail, and was covered with short gray fur. He was, in short, Cerebus the Aardvark. What did you think of the cover? The black and white? Well, you got it's black and white with that strip of color, and Cerebus is actually even saying, um, I th- ah, color. Yeah, I thought that was kind of a, like, a nice little uh, callback to his origins. Of a black and white comic. And it's not that the artwork is bad, but you really see the stark contrast in color versus black and white. It really pops. Well, they were doing the digital color. Co- color at the time, weren't they? Sure. Yeah, I think Steve so was pops. Doing yeah, it. so it yeah. pops. So at the time, Spawn is going through these little mini adventures, I guess, falling through different dimensions. The first part of the writer series is Alan Moore. was uh, Alan Moore, and it was Billy Kincaid's Kate. trip to hell. Yeah. So Spawn wasn't really a significant part of that story nope. beyond the delusions or the terrors that Billy Kincaid is facing. The second one is actually about Angela. fighting Angela. He gets drawn into the cape, yeah. and then something happens to him while he's trapped inside the cape. And, and he appears. Yeah, and it picks up from there. And I guess he's in, I don't know, man, like a writer's world? Or like, I mean... The book to me was basically commentary on how comic book writers are treated. It, it really didn't feel like a sponsor. It's basically him standing on his soapbox and preaching in comic book form. What do you feel? I agree. I mean, it starts out, I am Spawn. I am not Spawn. I am Spawn for I share all of his memories. I remember his my death. The skeletal face which haunts his days and his nights haunts me as well. Blah, blah, blah. And then I am not Spawn for I know many things Spawn doesn't know. I know the names of the two detectives who pursue him. I know when and how they finally meet. I know why they call the little one Twit. I know the histories of every one of his friends and every one of his enemies. I know things about them that they have forgotten about themselves. When Spawn goes to Al Simmons's grave one day and strips away the sod and digs down through the dark earth and opens the lid of Al Simmons's coffin, I know what he will find there. So it, as you read, I think you get the strong impression that obviously there's a Spawn story. Spawn is an icon that runs throughout the issue, but he appears to be somewhat of a writer's proxy because the creators, I think not even just the writer, because I think Dave Simmons is a part of this, but Todd McFarlane, I think maybe collaborated in presenting this it's them i think giving their views of what spawn represents and what image represents in the comic medium at that point in time mm-hmm. well, i mean and it was great imagery i mean you have that one scene of uh i guess the writers with hoods on their heads yeah they're, they're talking about how they've got the multiple levels of hell and that there's level seven and nobody knows what's inside erebus is what it's called spawn teleports into there and that's when he finds i don't think it's necessarily the writers i think it's creators in general Gen- the, okay. the talent nooses around their necks hands tied behind their back 
tracks. That's uh, a little heavy. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's I, intended to be symbolic, and it's a tip. I think it's intended to be propagandistic. So propaganda is obviously going to have a strong element of hyperbole because you're trying to rouse people. That's yeah. the whole point. Well, you, yeah, well, you're trying to trigger something. I mean, I saw that, and the dialogue itself, the imagery, I guess what I would say is the imagery is really... Okay, so McFarland drew this, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's that one image where Spawn is standing there, and you have... You know who the heroes are by their arms. Yeah. It's, How it's, they didn't get in trouble, he's, I'm not he's in sure. in a cave. The creators are tied up on one side. On the other side, there's bars where there's all these arms reaching out through the bars. And Batman, uh, Superman, Thing, Hulk. I don't even have to look at Wolverine. I can tell you what they look like. Juggernaut. Juggernaut. How they didn't get in trouble, I will never know. You know and, who and they are. And perhaps Venom's in there, too. Co-created by Todd McFarlane. Yeah. So, I mean... Although, let's be honest, it's just a small version of the suit that Mike Zek designed for Secret Wars, but still... True. Like I said, this issue felt more like a moral telling of what he felt, how creators get fucked and characters are, or, I mean, there's that one scene of Superman looking corrupt and evil and... Well, you know, that's the funny thing. I don't think that's intended. You've got Superman in a, in a partial silhouette because they give you enough so it's clear it's Superman, but they don't want to get sued either. Yeah. And so he's smiling and he looks evil as fuck. Fuck yeah, he looks corrupt as shit. But he's not supposed to be evil, I don't think. Because what they're doing is Spawn is trying to use his powers, which are now unlimited in the stream place to blast through the bars to save the heroes and no matter how much power he pushes out he creates a sun it's still not enough power to actually burn through the bars and so Superman appears and the other heroes are telling him take our power take all of our power take whatever you need to actually get us freed and it's just Superman trying to lend his power and it still does no good they cannot release the heroes from their entrapment if I remember correctly he tells them how he can give him his uh, the violator as uh, you see see the violator as blind justice which is a bizarre image yeah. Because it's got the violin covered head, in money. complexion, but he has big, firm breasts. And, well, yeah, but he has a dress made of money. Billions and, and billions of dollars. Yeah. Holding the scales of justice, and on one side of the scale is all the money in the world, and the other side of the scale is a heart covered in tears and blood. Oh, dude, this is so fucking heavy-handed. Ugh. I vaguely remember there's a scene where, doesn't he promise him he can find happiness? That he'll give Spawn happiness? You really should have read the issue before we did this discussion. No, there is. We give him the little... We're, right, well, okay. So basically, Violator is taunting Spawn for having failed to save the heroes. And I think the money's representing all the money that's being made through the creator's ideas, their dreams mm. that have been funneled away from them and given over to corporations. And the heart, the tearful heart is the creators who've, who lost out. Oh, no, I get on, on that. Participation. I mean, you see Superman also in prison saying simply doomsday. And I like how they note, there's no fear in his voice, no despair. It is a simple statement of fact. And then all is quiet. The silence is deafening. The silence is agony. Just this awareness that no, for, no matter what they represent, that the, the justice and nobility these heroes represent, they're still imprisoned by corporations. Their creators are left as paupers, powerless to do anything with their own creations once they've sold them out. And then Cerebus appears to spawn and basically leads them out of this purgatory hellscape, whatever it is. Yeah. Basically starts talking to him about you can't do anything for these guys. I've been at this for 15 years. I know. It's best just not even think about it. They go to Canada. They're in Kitchener, specifically, and passing through a bunch of locations that are familiar to Dave Sim because he's basically showing his neighborhood and he walks Spawn to the mansion where Spawn lives with his wife and daughter. Yeah, and he presents him with basically a, the, his dream life. But what's interesting is it's not Spawn's dream life because the child is clearly a Caucasian Anglo, yeah. with brown hair. Not for nothing, Cyan McFarlane, Caucasian with brown hair, about the same age as depicted in this comic book. So it's not that he's leading Spawn to this mansion where he now lives. He's leading Todd McFarlane. Cerebus is not Cerebus. He's a representation of Dave Sim and Spawn is there being being re- 
uh, representing Todd McFarlane, but he's not actually Spawn. Spawn is a part of Todd McFarlane, but he is not Todd McFarlane. And they're showing that and, and, you know, Todd McFarlane has the life that Al Simmons wants. He's got the wife named Wanda. He's got the daughter named Simon. He's got the nice house with about a million hockey cards, which I love that Cerebus says while sort of rolling his eyes at the yeah. fanboyishness of that. I just, dude, it's so fucking heavy-handed. Well, the story ends with uh, uh, Wanda Blake or Wanda McFarlane, however it happens to be. They even note in the story that it was his high school sweetheart and a real looker, which is true of real life as well. And the story ends with Spawn is trademarked and copyright Todd McFarlane. Cerebus is trademarked and copyright Dave Sim forever. Signed in this like cutesy font that looks like something Betty Boop would have had yeah. over her head back in the 80s at a Spencer gift. <sighs> At least Go my ahead. least favorite. I, I just, so kept, it's you, just weird because McFarlane basically turned into everything the Sims character was trying to say. Oh, this is everything you're trying to say. And fucking McFarlane turned into it later. And it was worse because he was stealing characters and, and fucking over people. And like everything he's trying to praise this concept of what Spawn is and only issue fucking 10. McFarlane turned into an issue like 190. Ah, oh, dude, it's very preachy. Well, okay. I mean, I get, I, well, I, I get I, it. I kept trying to get you to give us a synopsis of the story. Oh. You're already doing running commentary throughout. So you can't run dry and out. Please pray continue. Okay. I read this a while back, so from what well, I remember, you read it a, a few months ago. Yeah, a few months ago. Yeah, I would say it was like my least favorite of the books because, like of I said, the writer series. Yeah, really? You just peek behind the curtain. You just finished rereading issue number eleven. Well, okay, you no, you're finished? right. No, you're right. You're right. I just finished. Okay, no, that's true, man. That fucking Frank Miller was horrible. Uh, okay, no, you, we'll yeah, get, you got we'll me. We'll you caught me. Next yeah. Time. So your second, uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it just so like let's let's do this real quick. Okay, so we got a scale of one to ten, right? Yeah. Spawn number eight. Where's that on your scale? I mean, that's uh Alan Moore. <laughs> number one. Okay. Well, that, I'm always going to rank them. I was yeah. like more like a, a quality sca- wise. Uh, is it a ten? Is it? A, I was a nine. It's about a nine. Yeah. Okay. It's it, it, it's very it, it's very Alan Moore. He definitely put work into it. Okay. Next one. The game and issue. Um, a nine. Those were good. Yeah, uh, so you Angel- think that yeah. they're on a part. Yeah, yeah, they're part. Yeah, no. I mean, they're character building. I mean, they got a character. They gave you story. They gave depth to the character. They gave you a story of what happens to these characters outside of Spawn. Spawn is having his adventures. These are adventures. These characters. I enjoy. I think that the gaming issue did more to build the mythology of the Spawn universe than probably any other single comic book they, yeah. they ever came out with, yeah, including no, Spawn number one. Alan Moore's was Bob Billy Kincaid and the hell, and that's it. Yeah. You know, you're right. More, um, I would say Neil Gaiman is probably the linchpin in the Spawn universe well, he because he explained, okay, why they are, how they hunt them. Um, what McFarlane had done to actually give it scale. Yeah. Like with Spawn, it's like I was a Black Ops agent. I cut a deal with the devil to come back to visit my wife, and that's sort of where it ends. So yeah. Don't really oh, yeah, yeah. Really Greater detail that the force of hell are going to try to push. I mean, what you, they you, to do. but but even then, you don't. You're not sure of what he is in hell. Like you just know that Malbolcha sent him back, and that's it. It does. You don't know he's a soldier. You don't know he's part of an army. Well, I think you don't know the con- general. But, yeah, but you didn't know there's consequences to him exactly. not achieving his goal. You don't know who he's going to fight. You don't know what kind of army yeah. he's commanding. You don't know what they're the consequences of running out. I mean, at this point, dude, all we had him fighting were fucking mob robots. It definitely expanded spawn considerably. Yes, absolutely. So that's why it's important. So what's number on this issue? <sighs> It's not a spawn issue though. That's the thing. It's he's on almost every page. Yeah, but it's it's more a commentary about well, this is what I feel about the industry, and this isn't this, and it's more of a I'm on a soapbox and I want to tell you a story of what I feel, but I'm going to make it with cute characters. And it's like if Mickey Mouse were to do a VD commercial and shit for kids to okay. get it. So I, I get that he's trying to show you behind the curtain with his character and Todd McFarlane's character, but it's kind of heavy handed. Where at the end he's like, you know, oh look, uh, here's your daughter and here's your life and all this money. Let's be honest, I mean, McFarlane became exactly what the other companies began. 
again. You know, it's just money and power corrupted him. He got corrupted later on down the line. I've never read any of the Sim stuff, so I have nothing to go on. You've told me about it, how you're reading the books. I remember seeing it. I remember thinking the artwork was pretty cool looking, but there was nothing there to like draw me in. I mean, it's a fucking art bark swinging a sword, killing things. Yeah, I'm not into that. That's just not my bag. I think uh, Dark Horse would release, release like little issues, like those multi issues where they kind of give you a taste of it. And I think I've read a couple of those and never really well, got into it. It's funny because around this time they were pushing, I think he'd gone through the first 200 issues and he was on the way to 300. And they were really pushing jump on now or we're barreling toward the end of the story and everything. And McFarlane gave him his $100,000. He gave the other three guys. And it seems like shortly afterwards, that's when Sim jumped off the rails where he got really into the anti-thonism rants, the screeds about how men are the light and women are the void and women steal the light what? from men. Women take away their men's creative energy and robs them of their spirit and all this kind of bullshit. And then he lost most of his audience. And by the time Cerebus came to an end, he was actually someone in disgrace. He's never fully recovered from all those screeds because the industry turned against him. Comics still tend to be a fairly liberal industry. So for when you come out with those sort of controversial views, you're not seen as an edgelord. You are a pariah. And so yeah. by the time he hit 300, instead of it being a celebratory moment, he basically run the ship aground and was largely loathed. He used to be a, a pillar of the independent creator community. Guys like Jeff Smith used to go and eat at his house, right? And then I remember reading a story in a book that Brian Talbot, I think, wrote it, where it's basically a comic book confidential kind of thing where he's telling you the stories you don't get to oh, hear about Oh, kind of cool. Comics. I like those, yeah. And uh, he was talking about how Sim went on one of those rants in front of Smith about Smith's, uh, Smith's wife and Smith uh, like threw him against the wall and, and was about ready to beat the shit out of him and Sim has contested that story but that's one of those stories that are out there so when you go from being a hero to guys like Jeff Smith to being a guy who's going to get his ass kicked by Jeff Smith yeah. that's a pretty big turnabout and I, I wonder if the $100,000 didn't do that to him now Sim himself swears up and down that he's not a misogynist and in fact he used to correspond with a lot of his fans directly by mail and basically he told them that if you did not write a letter saying that you don't believe that I'm a misogynist or that I'm not a misogynist I will no longer correspond with you that's how far that went so he wanted a loyalty letter basically yeah wow yeah, so, yeah that's and, that's and, first signs of a issue yeah and I do wonder if that $100,000 that security that's provided maybe allowed him to go completely batshit yeah. and in the years since he apparently he became like a born again kind of Christian but he's like a Christian scholar and he believes in a certain strain that's all about celibacy and retaining like your chi or whatever the fuck and so he, he, he doesn't get laid anymore he reads the Bible a lot he does a lot of charitable work though I've, I've read where he will like read the Bible and, and give his uh, exegesis on that for charity and shit yeah. uh, he's done some good works you know he created the comic Judenhaus which was about the Holocaust and then he put it into the public domain so that anybody can print a copy of Judenhaus you can put it out in classrooms as an education tool against the Holocaust. And also he, to my knowledge, he does not have children. He's no longer married. And the intention is he's already set it up to where when he dies, all of his works are going to immediately go into the public domain. So we're all going to be able to own Cerebus one day. But for now, he still controls the character. But because he knows that's the end game, there's actually been some people who've been working on a Cerebus movie for years now. They're trying to create a CGI movie that's going to be an adaptation of the first couple of years worth of stories, taking mm -hmm. bits and pieces. And he's never officially granted them the license to do that. But he's also said that he will not take any legal action against them if they want to so you can go online and watch YouTube there's all these videos of the work in progress as they've been over years and years developing this CGI movie so he's an interesting character definitely a, a divisive character and it's weird to me thinking about what impact McFarlane may have had on that occurring mm -hmm. huh. that's okay. pretty cool actually that's but, really cool but onto this issue specifically easily my favorite issue of Spawn ever easily one of my favorite image comics ever and among my favorite comic books because I, don't, I wouldn't say 
think this comic shaped my view of comics. I was already aware of the travesties that have occurred, the injustices visited upon creators by this point in time. But I thought it did an excellent job as being a sort of a manifesto for why Image Comics exists, why it's important for creators to maintain their creations. To this day, those two creators own their characters. Todd McFarlane is now working on a movie. He held on to his rights. He worked on a script for years until it finally got to a place where he wanted to be. He talked to Hollywood producers until he finally not only get the movie made, but he's going to direct it. He got the, the star that he wanted, and it, he's doing it all his way. No comic creator has ever gotten to do that with their own movie. The closest would be Frank Miller with Sin City, where he contributed to the direction that Robert Rodriguez did, but he didn't get to write the fucking script. He didn't get to fucking actually direct the movie. He only ever directed that one movie that nobody wants to talk about. Yeah, the spirit. Right. And maybe so, that's what McFarlane should take. Into well, I, I have I mean, a, pro- he, I have a problem. Yeah. I, I respect that he's like, I'm doing it my way. And I'm sure they're playing Frank, Frank Sinatra in the background for him. But that's not your forte, man. Like, okay, you did it your way. And it's going to probably be a shitty movie. I really do think it's going to be a shitty movie. I think he was really upset about the first one because everyone else did. Come on, Todd. I mean, you've been riding Spawn, this dead horse, for a long time here, buddy. Well, let's not talk about the movie too much because that, we'll probably talk, cover that in the Spawning Ground mail section, too. Okay. Some more. But I do think that Todd McFarlane is probably a bit of an asshole. He's definitely obnoxious and he definitely no, 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 no. hates on people. I mean, he's full of himself. I mean, he's one of those guys like, don't tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it. And that's fine. But those people tend to also have that sense that everything do is great. And it's like... Mm. He has some perspective. Like, he's... He, of all the image creators, what is he he's ever one of the filmed? guys who's been most critical of his own artwork. I think, I think that one of the reasons why he stopped drawing is because he doesn't have confidence in his own artwork. No, no. He said it took him too long to do all the little detail. Right. It was his well, big... But also, he doesn't feel like he could ever have the impact today that he had back then. He feels like the industry's kind of progressed past his style and so he's very self-conscious that he just doesn't think he's as, he's good enough to be who people think he should be as Todd McFarlane. No, I think he doesn't think he's as good as he thinks he should but be. But I think he, like, when he's inking Eric Larson during his run, I thought it looked really good. I, I think he, he's done some really great works in Inker. I still think his artwork looks solid today. I don't think it's, he's lost that much in terms of ability. I don't think, honestly, I just don't think he wants to produce full issues of well, no, no, anymore I, either. Well, no, I mean, I'm sure he's a busy guy. He has to be super busy. But I think he's also the type of guy that if he takes a misstep, it's going to be a huge shot to his ego. So he'd rather freeze himself in time at that nice little spot where he felt he was at his peak and just say, well, that was me and that's it and I'm not going to do anything. Well, also, too, the dude became a entrepreneur. He runs businesses. He's working on a movie. I think he's got other worlds to, oh, yeah, to conquer busy. and he wants to do some other stuff. He, but, but, being but, stuck but, in a drawing board, drawing comic book is kind of a drag. But, let's but not, before we get, I don't want to get too far. We're running out of time. Okay. I just want to say that I love this comic. I love that it basically tells you the philosophy of the image, whether or not it's worked out in practice or not. It's like, look, as long as you're creating for these companies, you're selling your children, you're going to come up with some great creation if you're lucky. That creation is going to have a life on its own. You're not going to be able to profit from it. You're not going to be able to have any say over it. It's just going to be whatever the companies decide it's going to be, and you're going to be left in the dark, in the cold. No control. You'll have other people claiming that Marvel owns this. Marvel creates this. This is a Marvel product. This is a DC product. It's product, period. Whatever you have to say about Tom McFarlane, he still owns and controls Spawn. He still is invested in that character, has the obvious love for that character, and the image model is absolutely the model. If you're a creator, if you're not going after that, if, if you're not creating creator-owned books, you're doing yourself a disservice, you're doing your craft a disservice, and uh, you may never be able to benefit from your creations as a creator. And I, I love that this book is a manifesto for that. When I read this book, it, it makes me passionate. I want to read more image comics, I want to read more creator-owned books. If I ever got to do comics, I'd want to do creator-owned comics 
works because I would want to have that thing that's mine that I have as my artistic expression that if I decide that I want to end or that if I want to alter, I can do that without some corporation putting a rubber stamp on it. I, I think that, you know, you look at a guy like Jim Starlin, I'm sure he loves seeing his creations adapted into those Marvel movies and everything. But at the same time, most of the creators involved with those concepts died penniless or died somewhat impoverished. They never got to go to Hollywood. They never got that love, that zeal. So many comic book stories have been adapted from creators that don't, they get their name in the credits of one of those big movies, but they don't go to the Hollywood premieres. They don't get mentioned. They did the work. The work is adapted to screen. People are making millions of not billions of dollars off this stuff and they get nothing out of that. So however you may feel about what ended up happening with Dave Sim, whatever happens with Todd McFarlane, the ethos that they're espousing in this comic book does matter. And I do think it's an excellent manifesto and I, it jazzes me up every time I read it. I love that comic. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I just read that and then I realized that Todd basically turned into everything he swore up and down he would never be. And I'm not sure that's entirely true. I think there's elements uh, he's of that He's been true. sued. He's screwed over people. He's screwed over artists. He's stolen likeliness. I mean, he's... Hey. I think he's made mistakes, obviously. And I'm not... The not, only difference... Well, the I'm only difference is... I'm not apologist, yeah. but I also think perhaps he gets slagged on disproportionately, especially when you take into account the degree that he's been, had nonsense shenanigans in no way compares to any of the other big companies. Oh, no, no. But they've been around through 10 times his time... Like, Lifetime. I mean, he's he controls this stuff, dude. Dude, since Kirby and them have drawn, they've yes, they've all got screwed. How many of those guys got? Oh no, they all got screwed. They all got screwed. I mean, we watched that documentary about them where they were just day laborers basically for comics. They just drew comics and had no say. No, I mean, they drew the stories. They let them create, but they're like, but we own this. I mean, that sucks. I realized that there was not a work for hire contract in place when it came to Neil Gaiman on the Angel issue. I still think that Neil Gaiman is an asshole for expecting to make all this money because he never was going to make that much money on Sandman. I know he's never made that much money off Sandman compared to what he was able to make off of one fucking issue of Spawn and then a later miniseries. And Todd fucked up because he didn't make sure that he had gotten... He should have put everything on paper. And then when Gaiman wanted to put shit on paper and was willing to put shit on paper that wouldn't have necessarily been as super beneficial to him, McFarlane should have jumped at that shit. He was pig-headed. He was arrogant. He fucked up. And he got fucking ripped to shreds. Anal leakage. You know, he fucking, he had a prolapse rectum after the fucking courts were done with his ass. So whatever fucking misdeeds you can attribute to Todd McFarlane, he fucking paid his debt to society for that shit. He paid his debt and more to Neil Gaiman. He saw his creations or co-creations get sold off to fucking Marvel into slavery. Marvel's fucking doing whatever the fuck they want to with Angela, a character that he designed at the very least. You're not going to tell me that Neil Gaiman designed Angela. The visuals that you see every time there's a cover with Angela on it, that's not Neil Gaiman's work. That's Todd McFarlane's creation. Oh, they've kind of stepped further away. It's, from Marvel. They've well, stepped they, away from the not, It doesn't make them enough money. It's not worth the, the trouble for them to produce Angela Comics if they're not going to make a bunch of money off of it. There may be some complications with the rights. I don't think so. I think no. they just have it outright. Yeah. But maybe they don't have to deal with McFarlane jumping up and down and saying, that's mine, that's mine. Because again, we have the, the Spawn movie that's in the works now. McFarlane has basically said he hopes that the Venom movie does well. Because if the Venom movie does well, then when the Spawn movie comes out, they can say, by the creator of Venom, since he's a co-creator of Venom, and he thought, you know, maybe one of these days would be great since it's Sony and not Marvel. He could work a deal out with Sony where Spawn and Venom could team up in a movie someday, which I think would be fucking awesome. I don't think it'll ever happen. Oh, no, I, think, no. I think the Marvel would fucking shut down the nah. fucking Spider-Man Sony, deal before they let When, when that Venom crash and burns, and if the next Spider and, and, and the next Spider-Man movie doesn't do as well because Marvel's not as involved. Well, you mean the first one that Sony doesn't do? 
What do you mean? You said the next Spider-Man movie. Well, yeah. Apparently, isn't the next one Sony and not Marvel? No. The, Far From Home is being filmed now. By it's Marvel. It's going to come right? out after the next Avengers movie. Okay. And it's going to be released as part of the Marvel Cinematic Okay. Universe. So then, I'm, I'm so, okay. So the the next Spider-Man movie by Sony, which will be a reboot or some bullshit. I don't know that it will. I, they'd be very unintelligent for them to do that. I mean, if they... If, They're doing everything they can because they want Venom to tie into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Marvel has repeatedly said not to that. But then there's also the rumor that Tom Holland has filmed some stuff for the Venom movie so there's a lot of back and forth on whether or not that's a deal mm. or not I think that there's probably something that still needs to be hashed out between Marvel and Sony because they both go back and forth on whether or not Venom's going to count we'll see <laughs> According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Infinity debuted on October the 16th, 1992, as a star of the first ever Extra Image Presents, a planned floating anthology feature in their titles. However, Shadowhawk number two featured the second part of the story, and the first part in Brigade number two shipped a week later on October 23rd, 1992. No each title shipped in November of 1992, but Infinity was back relatively early on December 4th, 1992, as a backup feature in Supreme number one. In typical image fashion, the final chapter was delayed until March 16th, 1993, where it remained in Supreme Number 2. You read the story of Infinity. Can you tell us what happened in that book? Or in those chapters, I should say. At the very beginning, there's some kind of faceless robotic creature that it seems to have escaped some institution. It's like teleporting or yeah, time light being. Not just faceless, but it has something resembling a head and arms. It's onyx-colored, and it's wearing a brown trench coat. Trench coat. There's no legs, and yeah. it's referred to as Enigma. Enigma. Well, yeah, well, he doesn't say the name until later on when he meets Infinity, but I thought Ziggy from, like, Quantum Leap type thing, like a Apparently it's leaping. Is it leaping through time I or? Or the the story made like no fucking sense. Infinity so, so just what, shows what, up. Yeah, before okay. So what? Enigma shows up, and I thought and he's got, and this, and he's got was... this circle thing, this ro- this techno ball thing, like one of the variations on the Rubik's cube, and he shoves it into a matrix where there's a bunch of clones. I, it might have been at Gate Industries that Star Labs knocked was, off yeah. that they had that was in the uh, Liefeld titles. So he shoves this ball into one of the cloning beds, and then Infinity bursts out. It's a red headed woman in a white suit. Uh, and she I basically thought, looks like Jean Grey. Well, no, no, the, I thought it was one of the already the young blood characters. Young blood characters. No. Fahrenheit or didn't it have like Fahrenheit or Fahrenheit or Firm yeah, Tide they or did have some of those, but Firm Blight, some shit like that. Oh, is Infinity with an eye, two eyes, I should say. Yeah, she, but she just looked like Jim Lee's version of Jean Grey, and in like in. It looks like any other body. young blood character, me, female young blood character. Yeah. So um, what happens? So then? she pops up, fully formed, <sighs> in costume. I don't know. The story wasn't really coherent, dude, because it went from like her showing up and not knowing anything of her past. Her and mind like, is white. Flaps into yeah, she gra- she grabs them and Enigma, she grabs yeah. Enigma, and they're flying into space. And before she stops, is like, okay, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. How did we manage to get near halfway to the moon? Yeah, let's go back to Earth. They come back to Earth, and then we're introduced to Ripcord. Yeah, who's this assassin dude? So there's this Senator Edward Rife, and he is trying to expose the misdeeds of a former CIA director named Jeremiah Hagstrom. This is announced in a guest appearance by Spawn's Connie Chung. Yeah. 
alike. And basically, this senator guy is trying to expose that this ex-CIA director was working with terrorist organizations. And in order to stop him, they hire Ripcord, who's supposed to get extra money by being discreet and not letting anybody know that he was assassinating the senator. Except when he does go for the senator, he does it in public during a speech so yeah. that everybody sees this dude. And he makes a point of introducing himself as Ripcord to the media. Yeah. So that was money well spent. He's attacking and Infinity comes to his rescue and begins to fight Ripcord. And they drop a building on Ripcord and I think he dies in the end. Well, no, she rips his arm off. Oh, no, I think that she dropped the building off of him and then she picks she up the arm him. after oh, okay. he, I thought she, she squished him. Oh, okay. I, I, thought she had, I thought she had ripped his arm off. And then she's like, oh, I don't know who I am or what I'm supposed to do, but I guess I'm supposed to protect you, Senator. And the Senator's like looking at the Washington Yeah, the, it's taking place in like around Washington, D.C. DC. Yeah, and he looks at it and he's, they're looking into the setting sun and I'm assuming she's a protector of D.C. now? Yeah, I think he's, I've got a proposition for you. And they yeah. set it up as though he, she's going to be like working with the senator to do good deeds and shit. I think they even, at one point, Ripcord throws a, a barb at her saying, I've always wanted to fight one of you young blood chicks. Well, he did. It didn't work out for yeah. him. Yeah. So what were her powers? I assume she was like a Supreme type character. Okay. Maybe so a what, clone what does that mean in terms of powers? I think then? she flew. She had super strength. I don't remember any lasers out of her eyes. But I could be incorrect because that was really harsh artwork. Like it was all right. It wasn't <sighs> terrible or anything. It wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It was oh. all right. It, it was very much of the it was serv- cool. serviceable at best. They actually bothered with shit like backgrounds. You gotta give them credit for that. Yeah, I mean, they drew feet, so I was shocked there. I began my love affair with with comics right here in Washington after my dad had been stationed at McCord Air Force Base. My family had relocated to Tacoma. I was six. I was what we call a reluctant reader. But one afternoon, my parents handed me my first comics in a last-ditch effort to engage me during the final stretch of a seemingly endless cross-country move. Within months, I no longer had to be coaxed into reading. I wanted to read. When I was growing up in Tacoma, I had the good fortune of going to school in one of the most diverse and welcoming environments I've ever known. After my family left Tacoma, we moved on to North Carolina and then to Germany and then California. By the time I got to California, I knew that I wanted to work in comics, but there weren't a whole lot of options. I'd read enough about Jack Kirby, Siegel and Schuster to know that there had to be more to comics than the two publishers that had dominated everything for so long. And I'd grown up reading superhero comics, but as a young adult, I refused to believe that that was all there was. Fortunately, there were a group of popular artists who didn't care much for the way things were either. Newly minted partner Robert Kirkman and publisher Eric Stevenson had a simple strategy to turn Image into the HBO of comics. I I wanted to attract better talent. Uh, I wanted to put out better books. Um, I wanted to change the way people regarded Image Comics. But yeah, we kind of put together a list of people that that we wanted to get. Oh, who was on that list? Uh, Brian K. Vaughn, Grant Morrison, Mark Miller, Matt Fraction, Rick Remender. We wanted to get him. We wanted to get Ed Brubaker. The the only person that was on my list uh, that we could not get was Alan Moore. The way I look at it is... A couple years ago, we, I think we were like the fifth publisher behind Dark Horse and IDW. But that year was a better year for us than the year before. Mm. And really the main thing I'm concerned with is how we do from year to year. The, our, our, our biggest competitor is, is what we did before. I'm looking at when I started was 2008. And, and for me, it's like, did we do better than that year? Did we do better than the year before? 
that's that's what I'm concerned with. When you and Eric Larson took over as basically co-publishers right. of uh, Image Comics, I had a lot of creators, a lot of uh, of all levels. Call me up and say, what do you think about that? Is that a good idea? You know, Eric Stevenson is kind of like this indie guy, and the, his sensibilities seem to be over there. And I said, like, I think you're a little mistaken. <laughs> I mean, he used to work with Rob Liefeld. He's, he, right. he, 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 I mean, he's, he's a lover of comics. Yeah, but he's, he's, what was that? You, you published that anthology based on that English band that you like so much. Oh, uh, it's passion, yeah. yeah, he's like, he always the balance of passion. Yeah, but we like, sold like 15,000 <laughs> of those, man, like and, right out of the gate. And there were like all these worries, like, oh, it's just going to, you know, it's going to hurt image. And here you are, four years later, yeah. And firing on all cylinders, and all the creators that are working for you are bringing your A-game. And interestingly, and I will never say who, some of those creators who called me and asked if it was going to be okay are working for Image today. But, I mean, it's just weird because, I mean, I don't know if you and I personally have talked about this before, but I, I, I know I have talked about it before and I've written about it, but when I was growing up, all I read was Marvel Comics. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, up through, I don't know, like the, the the mid to late '80s, that was that was all I was into. When when I stopped reading comics at that point, and and I, I went to college, I, I came back to comics at a, at a certain point. Marvel was what brought me back in. I have a huge enthusiasm for superheroes and for science fiction and all kinds of stuff. But the the, the main thing is, I love all kinds of comics. I'm, I'm a comic book fan. I'm yeah. not a fan of a specific company, a specific genre. I just like comics and. Yeah, it, it, to, to me, I, I mean, I, I heard some of that myself, and it was just one of those things where it's like, wow, you don't really know me very well. So the character was created by Eric Stevenson and Richard Ory. Richard Ory is best known as a colorist. Along with his wife, Tanya, he's worked at DC and Marvel and did so up until around 2015. He actually did coloring on a number of the New 52 books. Uh, before that, he was a penciler and inker. He did so exclusively for Image and primarily for Liefeld's Extreme Studios slash Maximum Press slash Awesome. Eric Stevenson was the writer of the project. Now, he worked with Rob Liefeld and Jim Valentino in the proto-image days before Image Comics actually yeah. existed. He was there, like, helping them move into offices and shit when Extreme was getting formed. He contributed to Extreme Studios from the very beginning as a writer and an editor. He also worked under both Jim Valentino and Eric Larson during their 10 years running Image Central before ultimately succeeding them. He has been the editorial head of Image Comics since 2008. He was nominated for an Eisner for his writing on the series Nowhere Man, and most recently he wrote They Are Not Like Us. Did you ever read that book? No. It's actually pretty good it's sort of like what if Stephen King wrote the New Mutants or it also reminded a little bit of Cyforce basically it was like what have you done the X-Men but done it more realistically and done it with the type of metaphysical stuff that you had being explored in the 70s and 80s telepathy telekinesis precognition I think some pyrokinesis was in the mix and so basically you had this group of kids that had been gathered by one this one rich dude to all live in a house together and explore their powers but the one dude was kind of like wanting to control them and he's sort of a bad dude and they end up training up against him and they're like government agencies are after them and shit so it very much feels like Stephen King stuff in the early 80s like Firestarter and Carrie kind of sounded almost like John Burns uh, next, next, next Man I can see a little bit of that in there too Yeah, I liked it I bought the true trades that came out it ended before they came out with the third trade and I liked it enough to where I bought the second trade and I intended to buy the third trade but I can't tell you the names of any of the characters I forgot most of the specifics of the plot so it was solid it was good enough to get me to keep buying it but the fact that they never came out I with the third I'll, trade I'll borrow I, yours and take yeah. a look at it and then he also did Nowhere Men which I've never read I've got the trade I actually brought it with me so if you want to read it a yeah, later I want to flip day, it, yeah. I'll kick it your way he ended up doing some pretty good stuff later on he's obviously been hugely important to Image Comics though because he's the one who really set them on the path to becoming 
being the third biggest publisher in the country. And now that DC's moved out of the previous catalog, that's like their premier book that's still in the actual catalog. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed, they reorganized the previous catalog where Image is now at the very front of the book. I haven't looked. You were going to say something though? Oh no, just when you kept saying Norman, I kept thinking of the Beatles song. Earlier this year, 2018, Eric Stevenson was named to the Image Board of Directors. So he's the first member of the Board of Directors, of Image Partner, who was actually created by Image, who came up through the Image system and worked mostly at Image Comics. And so you're wondering, why did we cover Infinity? Yes. Well, I'll give you some landmarks. She is the ninth Image solo strip to appear in their own comic book story because both Pitt and Bloodstrike debuted as pinups and they hadn't had stories yet by mm-hmm. the time she debuted. She's the first Image property created by a non-founder. She is the first co-created by a writer who also ended up becoming a Image partner. Retroactively, she's the first character created by an Image partner known as being a writer foremost. She's a first property created exclusively by Image Comics talent. She's the first solo Image heroine. They'd never had a female character leading one of their books up mm-hmm. to the point that Infinity was created. She's the second Image property with a non-white creator because the Wildcats were created by two mm-hmm. Koreans. Yeah. And I believe that Richard Ori is Japanese. The name itself is Japanese and from pictures, he's not a Caucasian. And it's tied with Wildcats for the third completed initial image story arc. You know, uh, the Savage Dragon miniseries had ended by that point and the first arc of Spawn had ended. So she got a complete story almost sooner than anybody else. Mm-hmm. She also, of course, had some problems because this was the first image story created by untested, no-name creators. Uh, she has no actual origin story, but they didn't make sure to give her a logo. Yeah. I guess her powers are flight, energy blast, and maybe she's a super seamstress because at one point she's looking at an outfit in a shop window and then she materialized that outfit on her. I don't know if she created it from scratch, if she teleported it, if she could become material. It doesn't say. There's no actual story here. There's, no. There's, you know, there's just a, a fight and she just sort of turns up. There's no actual characters here. Nothing's done with any of these people. I hated that they have those high-tech grunts that show up out of nowhere and they've got like all this armor and shit. They might as well be Cobra or mm. Stormtroopers because they don't do anything they just happened like everybody had to be like super high tech in the image books you couldn't just be a thug with a gun or something so it was already like a cliche by the time Infinity showed up not a great character never appeared again she never was explored in any way even though she had some loose ties to the extreme universe and to Youngblood specifically but she is an important character in the history of image comics or at least an important footnote I would say so I just wanted to give her a little bit of attention because uh, last year when I went to Heroes Con I decided since it was the 25th anniversary of image comics that I was going to get a jam and have alternative comics creators that predated the image creators draw the image characters sort of in honor of image of course a lot of these guys didn't give a rat's ass about image comics and hated the guys who made up image comics so I think a few of these dudes particularly Los Brothers Hernandez were not thrilled to be working on the image characters for me but they did it and I appreciated that were and, they pretty cool the Hernandez brothers uh, I, I, mean, I don't think that they were thrilled. At least cool. I, I don't think that they were thrilled to be drawing image characters requested by me and I didn't come up to them telling them how much I loved Love and Rockets yeah. so I, I there was not like a mutual love fest between the two of us but in, in typical image fashion the, the piece is not quite done yet at the end I turned it over to Evan Dorkin and Evan Dorkin has like gone crazy with all these background materials you know adding all these different characters and stuff to basically complete the piece but it's also been over a year now and it's still being worked on so it's oh, he still has it or what? he still has it yeah so it's definitely an image jam because it's going to come out like on the 26th or 27th anniversary and it'll probably because I want to get it colored so it'll probably by the time I get it back from Dorkin and get it colored it'll be like the 28th still, anniversary does he know he still has it oh yeah I just talked to him last week about it all you right. know yeah so but yeah, he's done great stuff he's done great stuff I'm not I'm not at all you know and I paid him nothing I need to pay him more money because he put so much work into it that the pins that I paid him is nowhere near enough for the effort well, I, told you, I still it. have that he, original because I mean he completely filled out the entire background 
background with characters, including I asked him after the fact, at well after Heroes Con, can you add Infinity? Because even though she's obviously a footnote character to the point where I didn't even realize she existed, yeah. and I was trying to put something from all the major image founders, including representation for Robert Kirkman, who became a founder years later as well. So Infinity is in the piece. I just felt like she deserved acknowledgement, and I knew this episode was going to run long talking about the Spawn movie and Spawn yeah. 10, so Infinity is our backup filler for this particular episode. Well, just real quick, I do have a Evan Dorkin piece that when I met him back in like 95, 94, 96, around there, and I walked up and he was promoting his Predator book that he did, which I've never read. He wrote it, yeah. A I think cannibal, I read that. It was like a day. Cannibal Predator or something like that. It's been. I think. I think it was in Louisiana. So it's been a long. Yeah. Time, so. so he wrote that, and I asked him, "I love milk and cheese. Can you please draw just a little picture of milk and cheese for me?" And I gave him this big ass cardboard, and he filled the entire page with milk and cheese. Yeah. And everyone after, and he goes, "I do one per show. First person to ask gets one." And man, I had so many fucking offers. I've still had offers for like people because it's milk and cheese running at you. I mean. Just I that one now. of the first things I told him when I asked him to contribute to the commission because I specifically approached him about Savage Dragon and what that was before he was going to draw all the other characters as well. But the first thing I told him was that my buddy had had a piece by him for years. I've been envious all these years, and I, I wanted to finally match up and get yeah. a piece by Evan Dorkin. So uh, we both have pieces now, yeah. and I, I'm pleased. He was cool that. as shit when I met him. He, he man, I, I did not converse with any of the creators to the degree I did Dorkin. Me, me and him, we. We had a great little conversation. Even Paquita had a, a great conversation with him. It, it was it was a fun little powwow. So I got you beat even more. And, and, and I ran into him in a hotel later on. We were all going to the same restaurant and shit. So I got you cool. beat even more because I met Terry Moore that same day. And Terry Moore was writing his, uh, what is his uh, his two characters? Strangers in Paradise. Strangers in Paradise. Hadn't even been done yet. He had the prelim artwork inked and everything and wanted to show it to Evan Dorkin. And some guy named Bob, who was from one of the, I think, Dark Horse, was there. He was like, what, Evan Dorkin? Which showing them that and I remember they grabbed him and because people are like looking at the artwork and like well will you sell this artwork like people wanted to buy pages off him and Terry Moore was like well I haven't really produced this yet so I don't know if I can sell it yet and but I remember Bob telling them stop you're coming with us and, and they took him and I got to be Terry Moore before he became somebody that's cool yeah so he was there with Evan Dorkin and Evan Dorkin he went, he basically took his his pages to get I guess like reviewed like what do you think and I remember Evan Dorkin was like wait right here and let me go get Bob <laughs> like they, they knew they had something there and then within well ultimately he published through abstract and yeah. a self-published company but he did have a stint at image comics they were but they is were, terry moore from here yeah he's a Houstonian. yeah that's what i, yeah. I thought that was and uh, again image strange the paradise did ultimately get him published under the wild storms uh i think they're homage studios imprint mm-hmm. for a while but he went back to abstract before too long oh, okay so or you know what it might have been at antarctic for a little bit I when first I was gonna say antarctic, yeah it? i think it was at antarctic which is a san antonio company that's best known for manga and then he moved to image and then he ultimately landed at his own abstract studios so just you know just to put the cherry on top of my story and my artwork well you're hijacking my story about Evan Dorkin and about Infinity well, see, no, okay. see, we, we, we both whipped them out you just didn't realize I had rolled mine and it had another oh, foot to wait go wait till you see the Evan Dorkin piece <laughs> motherfucker but mine's an original milk and cheese I mean, it's not the first Hellboy work that you've done. You did some work in the we did, Hellboy Wheel Tale. for the anthology, yeah. But it's the first time that I am uh, that I have uh, begged and pleaded with Mike Mignola to save my miserable life. Uh, I tried to get Batman. Apparently, you have to beg to a lot more people because it's a corporation. So I fished around for, like, where can I beg to just one guy? And uh, I... Uh, I swung it. I swung it. I'll be working as Mike's personal valet for about four months after the book comes out. That's going to be tough. Uh, I don't 
you know, I've never really worked as a butler slash chauffeur slash gopher slash um, whipping post for a cartoonist before. It's going to be very interesting. I'm going to California and I'm going to wear a the chauffeur outfit. In fact, the actual chauffeur outfit from Some Kind of Wonderful, the John Hughes film. I will be wearing that while working for the Mignola family. It's going to suck because I, I hear Mike's cranky. And I had to... Uh, I'm not kidding. All right. So I want you to start crying for me because I'm fucked. It could be worse. It could be like Neil Adams' indentured servant for for a week, and he'd send me to Pellucidar to get you know evidence on the lizard people who expand the universe. You know all about that? Neil Adams thinks rocks grow. This guy's hip. What do you give him the microphone and you take the sneaky pee pee camera? So your next question that I won't listen to. So what do we think about the Spawn movie? Again, first time director, I can do it. Micro budget, ten to twelve million dollars. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be the Spirit Part Two. I hope not. I watched the Spirit one time. That's my soul ached afterwards. It was so bad. Like I thought, if you could write a comic book, you should be able to direct a video game type movie. And it was a waste of Samuel Jackson. It was bad, dude. Like dialogue wise, even it was just fucking bad. It was a train wreck. I'd rather have seen that fucking Sky Captain movie again. Yeah, Sky Captain: The World of Tomorrow. Yeah. Also, a really bad. Fucking movie. horror. Yeah, McFarlane. The the last time I read McFarlane writing, because I've read Spawn since then, I've, but I, it was being written by Eric Larson at the time. And before that, I was reading the David Hine run. When I tried to read the Todd McFarlane, Simone Kazirsky run, whatever that was, it was some of the worst fucking comic books I've ever read in my life. They were It was fucking horrible. I bought those comics for like 25, 50 cents a piece, and I wanted refund. You know, it was so fucking, it was terrible. Boring and ugly and stupid and just bad all around, but mainly boring. So I fear that that's what we're going to get with the Spawn movie, that it's going to be Sam and Twitch. It's like, I'm not showing up for Sam and Twitch. Get the fuck out of here with that yeah. shit. But my understanding is they're trying to do something hard R. Uh, it was a gonna, horror movie. I suspect it's going to be kind of a 70 kind of thing going on. Like a Grindhouse? Huh? Like a Grindhouse type film? or No, no, no like Seven. Oh, like Seven. Oh, yeah. Okay. Where it's going to be kind of dark, but not big budget dark, and maybe a little CGI for when Spawn shows up, as maybe the person who's going to bring to justice whoever's the, the people that Sam and Twitch are going after. I hope it's good. I'm definitely rooting for it. Given that we have a show about Spawn, I definitely see us going to the theater and seeing the Spawn movie when it comes out and hopefully showing our support. But I'm not optimistic about it being good. I have a lot of reservations for it. I feel his ego is pushing him to do this. If he was smart, he would have said, hey, look, I got these writers that wrote these great horror movies and we worked on a script together. I've worked with this director guy to kind of learn. Like, He's done none of that. He's just like, I'm going to make this movie. And I feel like we're going to get a fucking TV movie. Like he literally just sit in front of the camera, point the camera and say, like, the fa- no, like I, I, think I think he's, he's going to be like the famous Lucas thing. I, I feel it's going to be a famous Lucas scene where it's like, faster. No, no, no. Slower. With dialogue and shit. Like, I just, no, I, I don't, I don't see him he's never directed anything i know but i think he's the kind of guy who's gonna sit there and i, I think either he's gonna try to be like a a, a a fucking uh scorsese or some shit which he can't he hasn't built up to or i just i don't know man i, I look but no i th- i really think that you're you're underestimating the following i i, I realize no i'm, I'm giving him his due he's he's 
his no, thing is all about, watch, watch, I could do this. Know, but, but he hasn't his, proven anything. Read his, well, he did direct some animation though. You know, he directed that Pearl Jam music video. He's done some animation. But you also have to appreciate one of the reasons why Robert Rodriguez was getting Frank Miller involved with the Sin City movies is he recognized that the comics had essentially storyboarded the yeah. movie. All he had to do was shoot the storyboards and he had a movie already. Yeah, we did he that with 300. Frank, but he got Frank Miller after Frank Miller had basically burnt out and ceased to have any talent at anything, right? And there's no indication that that Miller was a guy who could direct people, who could interact with people, because he was a guy who hid behind a drawing board all day fucking long. McFarlane has spent the last 20 years plus running companies. He's a mogul. He's run video operations. He's run animation studios. He's worked with HBO and cut deals with HBO. He's worked with the distributors for his toys. He works with retailers. He has to deal with people all the time. He's somebody who is probably going to be vulgar and he's probably going to say inappropriate things perhaps, but I think he's somebody who can tell an actor, okay, well, I want this out of you. Now, the the tricky part might be he might say something that'll offend the actors and piss them off and stuff, but the fact is he's not going to be working with very many name actors anyway. To oh, The only one I know of right now is Jimmy Fox, and Jimmy Fox is not going to be in the movie that much. you got to figure he's probably going to be in the movie for like 10 minutes at most. A very small part, probably. The expectation is he'll be in the movie more as if they make more of them, but there's only going to be so much of him. So I don't see where McFarlane wouldn't be able to work with actors, and he's somebody who has a visual sense. He will probably put the camera in interesting places. You don't need a big budget to put a camera in an interesting place. You look at the Sam Raimi movies. Raimi, of course, is a genius director. Mm-hmm. I'm not ascribing those talents to McFarlane, but the the fact that he knows how to tell a story visually, I think that he could probably direct a movie. I, I don't know if it'll be a good movie, but I think he has the capacity. I don't think it's going to be a situation where like he's doing a Kevin Smith kind of thing where he just sets a camera down and tells people to start talking. I think that he can direct people and I think that he can put a camera in places that'll be interesting. He wrote the script, right? But he did write the script and he's not a great writer. I get that. But I think that he might be a good enough writer for TV. Or, or movies. People under, I mean, you look at, you look at the shit. I mean, I'm sorry, but I've watched enough episodes of the Spawn cartoon. That's not a great, that, that show's not well written. But you, it sells itself through the visuals, through no, the music, a, through a, the style. It's a violent sexual cartoon. Right. So that's you do what, a violent, sexy movie and that can still be entertaining. It doesn't have to be high art. I actually think that his style and his sensibilities would translate better to film than they do in the comic page these days. I don't think that he's daring enough in what he's trying to do in the comics, especially when he was doing the shit with the, the white dude. I don't remember his name right now, but when he was doing that run of books, um, that could work better on screen than it does in comics. So I'm not saying I think it's going to be a great movie, I, but I'm hopeful because I can see that he's got the skill set to where it could be all right. It could be pretty decent. I think that I have more optimism for McFarlane than I would have had for Miller even back then. We didn't know how bad Miller was going to get back when he did The Spirit, but I think that McFarlane has already demonstrated that he has more skills necessary to direct a movie than Miller had. I and frankly, that. I think he showed more screenwriting chops too, because one of the problems that Miller had when he was trying to be a screenwriter is he kept writing for comic book budgets. Comic books have an unlimited budget where like when he did the Robocop movies he wrote so much shit that didn't translate well to screen or would have cost a bunch of money they ended up taking his script and breaking it up into two different fucking movies so they yeah. at least get budgets for those two movies. So I, I think that McFarlane has a more realistic idea in part because he has to deal with money all the fucking time. He can manage people. I think you're underestimating what he can do. I still That doesn't mean he's going to do anything good in terms of film. I just don't think it's fair to underestimate him. And I really think you're, you're too hard about like oh he's fucked over all these people. It's like most of the people he fucked over one of the reasons why he got into trouble is 
because they were also moneyed people that could go after his ass with lawyers. He, Tony Twist went after his ass because he did something stupid. He, he named a character Tony Twist, which was the actual legal name of an athlete who had millions of dollars to sue his ass with. And so he went to court and it cost him a boatload of money for lawyers. It cost him a boatload of money in settlement fees because he ended up getting something like a $15 million judgment against him that became a $5 million budget. I'm not saying McFarlane has done some stupid shit, just like spending $5 million on a baseball mm-hmm. that ended up being worthless a year later. But he had the money at the time to be stupid with his money. I don't think he can be stupid with his money now. And that was 15, 20 years ago. One would hope that he would have done more with himself since then. It's smartened up since then. So don't be so hard on the guy. He's never fucked people over the way that the big corporations have. He pissed off Brian Michael Bendis by dick, being a dick to him by firing him off of Sam and Twitch when he found that that he had jumped ship to go work in Marvel. Well, that's a dick move, but it's not like he's taking away his creations and not spending him, spending him, giving him any money for it and shit like that. I mean, I think McFarlane's made mistakes, but I don't think he's necessarily that bad of a guy to where he could in any way be compared to the fuckery of the companies. What do we think about Jamie Foxx? Uh, Keith G. Baker specifically asked us about that. He's an actor. I mean, he, he's not a great actor. You don't like uh, Jamie no. Foxx? I, I, every movie he plays in, he's Jamie Foxx. Right? Yeah. No, he's still Jamie Foxx. He's he's doing an interpretation of Ray. Like, okay, so you'll watch a movie. It, it's a period piece like that, say, based on a character. There's certain movies that when you watch the character, like, best, I, Tanya, best example. I just watched it not so long ago. I fucking forgot that's fucking Harley Quinn on the goddamn screen. I watched it. I thought that was fucking halfway. To, yeah. yeah. I, uh, there's times I'm like, this footage from like a news she was amazing i really really believe that was her i forgot that that wasn't tanya harding and i know what tanya harding looks like because i remember that whole situation the way she spoke act talk it was amazing amazing i watched ray it was like someone doing a it was like eddie murphy when he does impersonation impersonation. yeah Yeah, i i didn't believe that was ray charles it was just somebody doing an impersonation Impersonation. okay i've seen some of his other movies i mean he's just jamie fox is jamie fox is this guy i don't ever watch him and say wow that's not his fault he's just you know he's he's a bankable actor he's usually comedic i can't think of the last movie i saw him in well i I like jamie fox i wouldn't call myself a fan necessarily but i've really enjoyed him in some movies i thought he was great in jarhead and of course django on chain fucking awesome movie and he's great in it and it's funny to me to think that Tarantino wanted Will Smith for that because Will Smith could have never pulled that off where Jamie Foxx could. I think that Jamie Foxx is a really good choice to play Al Simmons. I think that he could pull it off very well and my understanding is one of the reasons, one of the, the way that Todd McFarlane was able to get Jamie Foxx to sign on in part was the simple fact that Foxx is apparently a fan of Spawn. Uh, there's a picture that was going around years ago where McFarlane drew a head sketch of Spawn for Fox. McFarlane explained that if you sign on to do the Spawn movie now, you're only going to be in the first Spawn movie a little bit. Uh, but it, the way that I'm setting this up, you don't have to be like a Chris Evans where you're going to have to stay in peak physical condition the whole time. You know, Spawn's a character that's in the shadows. You can have stuntman. You're going to have CGI. You're not going to have to be this physical presence. The suit and your acting is all that you need. And so you're going to be able to play this character of Spawn if it's a success for years and years. You could play this character for another 15 years into your career. And Jamie Foxx is into his 40s now, I believe. So that was a big selling point is we're going to make more of these things and he's going to be this character for movie after movie. I think that he's got a decent enough voice. He's obviously not Keith David, but who is? Yeah. But he's got the physical presence. I think he can act the character. In some ways, I mean, as much as I like Michael Jai White, because he's such, it's so awesome to have a dude who's actually a martial artist yeah. and who's actually a big muscular dude who can do what a superhero is supposed to do in his movies. But he's not the strongest of actors. 
I think that Jamie Foxx is a stronger actor. And more importantly, I think he has more of a screen presence. I don't think that Jai White acts to other actors. I think Michael Jai White has this big performance and that's what carries him is he's just, he's, he's this big physical presence. Jamie Foxx can actually interact with other actors and, and respond to them, react to them. And I think that because of his swagger, the way that he carries himself, he has a very Simmonsy quality to him. So I think it's actually an excellent bit of casting. And Jamie Foxx is a guy who never got to do the Super Troll franchise. For the most part, has he ever even had a franchise? No. And I think he deserves one. And I think that Spawn is a good pick for him. But here's one of the stumbling blocks. The sexual assault allegations. No. What do you think about those? Did you hear about that? No. There was a woman in Las Vegas who said... Oh, yeah. They smacked her with his dick or some shit like that, right? Is that, do you remember any more from that? No. I Somebody was making a joke about it I overheard. Like on some radio show or something. That he used his penis as a battery ram or some shit like that. Or I don't know. Tapped her on the shoulder or some shit. I don't know. In Las Vegas, I think 10 or 15 years ago, she's at a party with Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx's people brings her over to come hang out with him. At some point, his penis made a presentation. And she, he basically was trying to get her to suck his dick. And she refused. And at some point, he slapped her in the face with his dick. And so 10 to 15 years later, she went to the Las Vegas Police Department and reported him because... Because she wanted to make sure that if he'd never been doing anything like that to anybody else, that it was on the record that he had done that. And basically, as a show of support, if there were any other sexual abuse allegations against Fox. So far, none of them have come out. I'm a feminist. I'm a supporter of the Me Too movement. I don't know how she managed to run into his dick with her head. I know that Jamie Foxx is a big dick. You can see it online if you'd like. No, he had, I'm fine. He had, he had pictures that floated around there for a little bit. He can, he can definitely get some distance with his cock. But for him to dick slap you, your face would have to be within a foot of his penis, you know, of his crotch. Yes. So that doesn't happen on its own. If if there was a story about security forcing her face into his crotch or something, but that's not the story. He apparently whipped out his dick and slapped her with it. So she managed to get into proximity of his dick. That's all that he did. Unless anything else comes out, stay out of the way of Jamie Foxx swinging dick. I I'm not really touching this one at all. <laughs> so yeah, I have no problem with Jamie Foxx. I actually think that he's probably a good pick as long as nothing else like that comes out. Or more importantly, something worse than that needs to come out. And then I'll maybe start to think twice about that. So. Oh, okay, man. That just got really awkward at the end. So on the Brigade episode, uh, Monkey76 liked us on WordPress. The Angel episode got a Google Plus One from the Hammer Strikes. On Facebook, we got likes and shares from DeBeche, Richard Field, and Derek William Crabb. On Tumblr, we got attention from Zegas, which is Michelle Fife. On Twitter, we got that sweet, sweet spawning from the 108 Sage, Ali Bats, Andy M at All Star Andy DC, Dr. Ange, Backseat Directors, The Bad Boy, Pico Django, Bone Dragon Comics, Carlos Digital, Cash Flag, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Charles Chuck Forsman, who, uh, by the way, is the creator of the uh, comic book End of the Effing World, which was recently adapted at Netflix, and uh, the Revenger series, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Dr. Gene Nerdologist, Ed Moore Jr., Fan Holes Podcast, Gavin Higginbotham, Giddy Gus, The Hammer Strikes, History of Comics on Film, Into the Weird, which is Grant Richter's new blog or podcast, It's Plastic Man, Jacob Proper, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, Joe Crawford, John M. Wilson's podcasting again, Kashif Ali, Christados, Kyle Benning Likes Comics, Longbox Crusade, Lost in Time, Merch, Nethead, Odell Abner Dracula, Paul D. Nolan, Relatively Geeky, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Sean Michael Ortega, Sean Phillips, Siskoid, Steve Sellers, Tim Price, Toll Booth, Varangian Vigilante, and Warlord Worlds. Comments came from Dorkness Delight, who thanked us for playing their promo. Joe Crawford wrote, Newest Spawn has the return of an old friend. Steve Sellers wrote, I remember liking the Angela Mini quite a bit, though it's been a long time since I read it. Such a shame that everything went sour when it comes to Angela and Spawn. Derek William Crabb sent us a gif of Barry and Levon with their $240 worth of pudding, which is from the state <laughs> sketch show from MTV. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Jeffrey Brown wrote, I have that issue of Spawn number 10. Now upon my first reading in 08, I was also watching the Spawn animated series and I do remember reading the wordy gaming issue. I just thought she had a cool design, but like most things, I didn't get the action figure in the 90s. And uh, Keith G. Baker wrote, any thoughts on Electro playing this part, Rolled Spine? Oh yeah, I forgot Jimmy Fox was Electro. I think we all need to forget that Jimmy Fox was Electro. That was fucking wretched. I still think that Sp- Amazing Spider-Man 2 is one of the worst superhero movies of all time. I don't know, we just watched Man Thing. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on the Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at mirrorfactorypodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr. If you're a history lover or a musical lover, you probably know about both Hamilton and Burr's rise to power in the early stages of American history and their infamous duel. But what if you didn't know the full story? What if one of them was a werewolf? White Rocket Entertainment proudly presents a 48-page full-color comic book, Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale. Written by Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. Art by Nate Niles. Colors by Ace Wheelie and Ken Solomon. Letters by Percival Constantine and edited by Johanna Albrecht. Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale. Available digitally on Kindle and Comics Central. C-O-M-I-X Central. Prefer a print copy? Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale, along with my other published works, are available at theyardsaleartist.big.com cartel.com that's the yard sale artist.bigcartel.com or you can buy it directly from me creator jared albrecht the yard sale artist at any of my comic-con appearances hamilton versus burr a werewolf tale get your copy today you won't regret it don't take my word for it here's what ming chen from amc's tv series comic book men had to say about it i really enjoyed it a lot of great werewolf scenes in here a lot of great uh, this is how I wish history would be told to kids. <laughs> Looks like a- a Hamilton versus Burr, a werewolf tale. That's Hamilton versus Burr, a werewolf tale. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel with some exciting news about the Punch Like a Girl podcast. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, Liz, I'm, I'm just doing the promo. Tell the people about how the podcast we do together covering graphic novels and trade collections starring female protagonists is moving. To, and um, actually, I'm, I'm mansplaining again, aren't I? Uh-huh. Well, I, I can just, um, here, here you go. Punch Like a Girl is joined in the Fire and Water Network and as of October will be found on the network feed and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Is it okay if I just invite folks to join us in celebrating the girls who kick butt? I think you already did. Yes! Nailed it! Don't worry, folks. I'll keep them in line. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight 
you. Hell!